This is Dan Fagell, and you're listening to the AI and Business Podcast, where every Thursday, and today is a Thursday, we talk about making the business case for artificial intelligence in the enterprise. Today, we're actually going to be talking about selling AI. And believe it or not, whether you sell AI-related products or services, or whether you're buying, you basically need to have a lot of the same expertise. You need to understand the right questions to ask. You need to be able to match artificial intelligence to real business problems. You need to be able to estimate and quickly calibrate what the return on investment is going to be. And our guest this week goes into a lot of those details. Whether you're a buyer or a seller, you're going to want to listen in to Tim Estes. Tim is the founder and CEO of Digital Reasoning. Digital Reasoning has raised $130 million to bring artificial intelligence into healthcare, into finance, and into security and intelligence. And Tim talks about what some of those critical factors are. How do we actually find that right match? How do we you know, communicate with the decision maker in terms of understanding where we're going to align that value to be able to actually move a deal forward? Whether you're a buyer or a seller, this is going to be useful for you. And I do know that a lot of our listeners are sellers. Many of you, and you know who you are, message me on LinkedIn all the time about different episodes. Let me know your feedback. Let me know your thoughts, different topics you want to learn more about, and I always appreciate that. And many of those very ardent listeners are folks who are AI strategy consultants. Maybe they are IT consultants in some way. Uh, These are folks that work with AI or IT-related services, and they want to get smart from this podcast so they can build a better slide deck and talk to their clients. They'll understand what use cases to use, what challenges to overcome, how to actually deliver value, and how to make that business case. That's part of why we're starting this Thursday series is for that group of folks, although I think this episode is useful for everybody. If you are on the sales side, in other words, you you offer some kind of AI-related product or service, check out Emerge Plus. This is a subscription we essentially built for you. This is a whole suite of resources for folks that sell AI-related products or services from our best practice guides around calculating AI ROI and moving towards artificial intelligence adoption to our industry explorers so you can find all the right use cases quickly to our full AI white paper library so you can have the right resources on hand to build the right deck to get up to speed and be able to not only close the deal but deliver value in the project. That's emerj.com slash P1. That's P as in plus one. Emerj.com slash P1. And you can learn more about Emerge Plus and all those benefits. Again, if you're selling AI-related products or services, we've essentially built that for you. So be sure to check it out. Um, We definitely do have plenty of enterprise leaders that are in there as well who are dealing with some of the same issues as I mentioned. So it's not limited to sellers, but if you are one, by golly, you should at least check out the page. We built it for you. So without further ado, we're going to move in with Tim Whatever side of the table you're on, these are the kinds of questions you should be asking and the kinds of considerations you should be bearing in mind when we're actually considering a build or buy decision around artificial intelligence. Tim does a great job of summing things up. So without further ado, I'm going to let him take it away. This is Tim Estes with Digital Reasoning here on the AI and Business Podcast. So Tim, first things first on this series around selling AI into the enterprise, uh, it's just getting your perspective on what you consider to be the most important parts of getting a first appointment. I know some enterprise buyers are excited just about AI as a term. Others run away from it. What does it look like to get in the door in the first place as someone who sells AI? Well, yeah, I think I can draw from uh, some historical efforts, especially as we went into banking many years ago. I think the first thing that I learned in this was that you know AI gives you a bit of a cachet sometimes to get an audience. At least it, it used to. I think it's potentially it's fading a, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, yeah. So I think I think the AI area just was highly interesting and had a cachet when people were in mode to learn, and that was particularly from like 2012 through probably 2015, 2016. I think in 16, so many people started to adopt the phrase. 
that there's a lot of market confusion and noise. So I think that what you know I would have said four or five years ago is different than what I would say now. Mm. And the number one thing I would say now is that there's a timeless you know advice when dealing with any kind of customer. And that is, you know, you need to realize that you're there to understand their problem and you're there to leverage your expertise or the work you've done to fit to them. And that's basically empathy. So I think the most important thing, there's sort of getting the appointment, which is sometimes about how do you have something that's differentiated enough to get through the noise? You know, like I said, five years ago, it would be different where I think you could actually go in and, and if we said... Well, we do unstructured data analytics, and we're the only people that can do resolution of entities from unstructured data at scale. That was a calling card, and and we still are probably one of the few that do that well uh, or have a track record of doing it. But it's actually less of a thing. Now it's like, okay, uh, you have all these different AI companies out there. They've probably heard from other people. So I believe you have to basically generate credibility and show empathy up front. So empathy is sort of basic, but then it's often forgotten, especially in, you know, when you used to be able to get access easier. And I think that the credibility thing now is, is really important because I think that you have to know enough about the problem you're solving and the pitfalls that of all the options, they build trust that if you get a shot, if you're given a shot by them, something's going to emerge from it. So like with us, you know, we, we think the biggest pitfall from a lot of these AI projects ends up being the overhead and the investment to educate the machine. And so we talk a lot about machine education. How do you do that right? How is that essential to make a process actually have a good outcome in terms of automation? And so I think that, that you know, that's not just a, a shtick for us. That's a lesson learned that came out of years of delivering stuff. Yep. And, and there's starting a lot of AI companies that have that kind of that kind of positioning because a lot of them haven't delivered a lot yet right it's just a very grand idea Super nascent. so so i think yeah, yeah so, so i think that that's where the the challenge is i think differentiation is more important it's a return to basics in terms of empathy it's all about thinking through what you're doing enough to focus in on the fact that you you kind of know why your approach is more likely to yield value for them in a predictable way and we're coming into the second and third generation of these AI projects that may or may not have worked, right? Five, six years ago, you know, it was a lab. Now, it's probably a handful of failures out of the lab and one or two successes. That's exactly so, so, it. At, at best. Right, right, at so, best. Yeah. yeah. So, so, yeah. So, maybe that's a little bit of a, of a wide-ranging answer, but I feel like it's a more complicated answer than it was a few years ago. And, and I think that you have to be more disciplined and focused to rise above the noise. But the basics are important. And people forget that, you know... They don't, you know, people don't care that you know what you know if they don't know that you care. And so I just think that's just in all situations that's useful. And AI now, it's it's absolutely critical because there's so much sort of braggadocio and claims out there yep. that it becomes very hard to, to, to separate someone who is a pretender from the real thing. Yeah, so the, the, the sizzle maybe still exists, but isn't going to carry you all the way there. Um, you're talking about kind of empathy, addressing pains, I think. Hopefully, anybody selling an AI product who's tuned in is, you know, a, a selling to those rather than than to AI itself. And hopefully, anybody listening in who's buying is buying based on real business needs rather than based on buzzwords. And that sort of spins us into when this goes beyond the first conversation into a proof of concept. I think sometimes this is where the rubber meets the road, where things are a little bit different than an IT 
acquisition or an IT, let's say, integration. AI, as you had mentioned, it used to be a lab. I mean, you know, we had new hypotheses to test, new kinds of data to work with. For a vendor company like yourselves or anybody else who's out there selling AI mm-hmm. to the enterprise, making a proof of concept something other than a failure is a big deal and something you want to do a lot of. What does it look like to set up a proof of concept to win as opposed to making it what I heard uh, someone from IBM was on the podcast not that long ago said technology tourism, which I really liked as a term. Hmm. What does it look like to get past that? Yeah, it's, it's probably one of the most expensive forms of tourism. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. I, I, I think that's, you know, I've heard it also called technology entertainment. And I think that both those things are expensive and, and you know, a little bit anathema to the person who created the budget. To, to actually do it right. So I, I think that th- this is actually a really good question in the sense that I think a lot of people focus on showing something that's interesting in a proof of concept. And it's they don't always allocate the time to basically help the customer, the enterprise partner build the business case. So I guess I'm assuming two things. One is I'm assuming that if you're lucky enough to get a proof of concept, that you will deliver it. And I think that that actually requires a lot of accurate expectation settings. When I think about the industry, I think some of the biggest kind of uh, catalyst for moving into this trough of disillusionment-ish period we are in now, which I think is hopefully a fair point. Yep. We have a lot of people on the show. I'm sure people talk about this now. I, I think the so. The ones that are practitioners. Yep. So I, this area, it comes because expectations were either naively set and no one intended anything, or there was such drive to get business because of how exciting it was, that the discipline went away and they were oversold. So I think there's kind of an honest overselling, which happens early in a technology space. And there's like a, I wouldn't call it dishonest, but maybe you should have known better. And so I think that the tolerance for the, you should have known better and the overselling is a lot lower because we're in the second or third generation. So once again, we're back to the basics. You know, the sort of undersell over deliver is a big deal here. And I think a customer believing you've over-delivered is a lot of times focusing on you know, what the business value is. So a lot of AI projects are about automating something, taking a human task, having a machine replicate certain steps in that task at a level of quality that the automation is accepted by the customer and, and their set of end users, right? Yes. And so whether that task is something like RPA tasks, which you know, have been mostly you know, driven by kind of manual or rote workflows, or they're like our kind of task, which we sometimes call language process automations, where we're, we're essentially teaching a machine to decide, you know, this email you know, really has suspicious signs of inside information. Here is why. And that's better than a human reading a bunch of emails a lot more just because keywords hit. Right. So that's like a threshold we go through in a perfect concept to show them that machine learning and, and models from a lot of customer data using current technology is just substantially superior than you know legacy keyword or lexicon-based systems. And we have many other kinds of things we do, but I think we have to set up the contrast. So to have a good proof of concept, you have to make sure the customer needs to understand that their baseline today actually needs something better. And you have to really be quantifying their baseline today. Uh, not as a straw man, but with fairness, so that you can show what the yield was if you put the proof of concept in production. Yeah, the kind of before and after picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And this is okay. Let me let me dive a little bit into this, Tim, because we see so many vendors in this space, and and we run a tremendous number of campaigns for vendor companies who are selling into you know you're talking about finance, 
insider trading, for example, we see a lot of the time that what is being sold is ultimately not very easy to measure in terms of before and after picture. In other words, very few people are going to measure the amount of seconds that this particular snippet of a particular workflow takes for these different four kinds of roles in our call center or something. Like they just may not. And even if you somehow coax them into it, then they're not going to have the discipline to measure it afterwards. And so what's ultimately being sold a lot of the time, and you may disagree vehemently or you may agree with me, um, what's being sold a lot of the time is basically like fear of risk. So you're talking about insider trading. You don't even, in my opinion, I don't really know if you need to prove efficiency that much, so long as you can spook them enough to thinking that, hey, by golly, you're going to chisel down your risk of getting you know, slapped by regulators by like X percent. Doesn't it just make sense that if you could do this, you could chisel down your percentage? And we see a lot of appeal to risk rather than efficiency yep. or ROI because you can't freaking measure it. What is your take there? Uh, you're making a, yeah, a very interesting point that a lot of organizations uh, in these kind of processes just haven't built the metrics to then make ROI like bef- like a from to before after easy to do. Yeah. So I think that's a very thoughtful point. And it's not something you probably wave in front of the client because they may think they're very well organized until they dig and they find out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. And, and then you'll have other ones which, you know, they're, in fact, I love the cynical buyer. I love making them feel like, wow, they found something good. They're a hard audience. The cynical buyer is one where they actually have a lot of criticisms of their own internal processes. So it's like they know they can do a lot better. And what you really want to do is focus in on an area where they think they can do a lot better and just prove it. So in some ways, you can do a small part of the from two by focusing on a hot spot they already know and making it a binary test. So I think that's that's one technique, uh, if I can call it that, that I've seen work, which is, you know, for instance, in a more specific context, you know, we have one of our most prolific automation applications is actually in the healthcare space, where our system is triaging doctors' notes, specifically uh, radiology and pathology reports, and just deciding that this is a diagnosis of cancer and it's of this kind. So it's if which. So if cancer, which cancer, yeah. and then infer what the priority is. And it turns out that like, I won't say that task is really hard for any nurse who's been trained at all. But what's interesting is the last thing a lot of these providers want to be dealing with in an era with a lot of patient volume and aging population is allocating scarce nursing talent to essentially a back office task. Yep. So all you have to do is show that the quality of that inference matches human quality and it can run at scale with consistency. And now you've unlocked all this value and you have all these knock-on effects, like how many patients do you find that might've been administratively missed and and other things. And we've done this with HCA at large scale. So I'm trying to be concrete, so it's not a vague Yeah, thing, no, no, right? I like it, I appreciate and, that. And, and, and so I think that in this case, uh, what we're looking at is, when we test this originally at three hospitals before going to like 160 across the country, it was all about, you know, could we get the quality level where they had comfort, a nurse not doing that work or a navigator, which is yeah. someone who's not a nurse but trained. So it was actually not about exactly all the metrics and all the measuring. In fact, they had to do a case study after we got in production that made all that really sound. They knew it was a success up front because the idea that a machine could even do this and do it with that level of quality without any risk, that was a binary test, right? Yeah. So, okay, this is, is a really fascinating point. And for, for those people who are tuned in as a vendor, I think this is really, really great. Tim, I, I appreciate you kind of poking into the way you've really thought about this. And I don't want people to miss it. What you're saying is 
you don't necessarily have like a gargantuan spreadsheet on one side or the other. You find something that they're already frustrated with and you say like, you know, isn't it now, here is kind of proof that this is now plausible. Wouldn't it be ubiquitously good if X, right? Maybe I can't measure how much happier your nurses are. Maybe I don't know in each one of your departments, you know, how many more people you'll be able to treat. Maybe I don't even know how to project any of that, but like, wouldn't it be good if? It sounds like that's what you meant by a binary. I don't know if you have yeah. any color you can throw on that, but. Yeah, that's right. And I, th I think that's about right. Is that basically, in the end, the, the strategy of finding one area is all about if other people have said they can do this and no one's proven it to you and we prove it to you, this one thing, the trust light goes on and then you build a partnership to deal with all the details. And yeah. so I actually think a startup is more aligned to this type or I call it a smaller like insurgent vendor is much more aligned to what I'm talking about here because in a lot of times the larger enterprise, they're talking to you because they kind of don't believe that the large enterprise account manager from company X or Y is really going to know this stuff. Like they might know the relationships, might know the tasks, but you know, they might've been selling statistics software five years ago and none are selling AI. And the startup or the smaller vendor that it's at the core of their business is AI and the founding team is yeah. doing it. Yep, or yep, yep. Like, like in some ways they, they kind of believe upfront, they have a certain benefit of doubt that the new guy might be able to crack through a problem that's really irked them. What they doubt also, though, is that the new guy is going to have all the knowledge about the process. So it's kind of more honest to say, I mean, when we started in, in, in our areas, we were understanding unstructured data like emails and then chats. But we didn't know the first thing about compliance when we went into banking in 2012. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and now we're reading emails in all these banks, like triggering compliance risk alerts, you know, for hundreds of thousands of employees all over the world. And, and we don't have that knowledge because we founded with that view. We listen to our customers and co-developed with them. And I think that when you're an insurgent, they actually want that, like the, the right champion. And so the, I think the other part is there's a subjective part, which is who is on the other side of the table. You want to have a champion. You want to have someone who isn't there to find a way to say no, but is actually there to find a way to say yes. And you give them the reason, which is give me something hard. I'm going to bust my butt and prove that we have this and that we'll do the work where we don't know to prove it. And that trust that's built in that POC then turns into, okay, I know you're going to add value. I've sold it up my chain. We're going to do something with you. That's the conversation you want. And then it's sort of, what can you guys really do? Like, can you do the tool or can you be just the engine? Can you be both? If so, how long, you know, I think that's what you're looking for to break out. And, and that was kind of our early story, you know, five years ago or so in the financial services area. If we hadn't found some champions and some people that, you know, we're like that, you know, we, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing today. Yeah. Well, I, so many other vendors are going to have to follow that path. And I, I again, appreciate your frankness. I, I don't know if uh, my average vendor CEO gets to that level of frankness, but your frankness in that, hey, sometimes you're going to go in and actually you're not the expert at all, but you're going to say, look, this is what we're good at. I'm going to sit here. And like you said, bust my butt to solve this hard problem for you. Then you build up the expertise, you scale from there. I think anybody that, that thinks their story is going to be that much different is probably fooling themselves. I think what you guys had to figure out is it's the hard process of how do we make a new tech click in an old space. And it sounds like there was no substitute for those, those various trials with those various champions. Yeah. I think looking back, we can say, you know, we could have shaved a year off if we just known this, but 
I don't know how he would have done it up front. I mean, I think some of the vendors that start in a space where you have a blend of an AI strong few members of a team plus a industry don- yes, domain yes, expert yes, or experts, yep, yep. they can short circuit that a little bit. But what tends to happen is when the pressure comes, what I've seen over and over again is they'll lean on the expert knowledge and codify it, i.e. make a rule-based approach because it's a shortcut and they can show some value because maybe the legacy system is just poor. So there's a lot of AI cheating that goes on out there yes, where there in is. the context of POC, you know, you just are getting to the outcome and you may not have really used you know, a thoughtful machine learning approach to get there. But you sold that, and then your champion goes and and sells all the potential of that, and then they take you to reality. And like, you know, I thought I bought this, and I got this, and I think that's something you always want to avoid. And so I, I think there's just there are definitely pitfalls, and being patient, and to be blunt, being humble. It's hard to fake being humble, and, and the truth is, if you're more on the technology side, you're going into a domain and industry. Be humble because you're not going to know that industry. If you're more industry oriented and you're using a little bit of AI sizzle, then say it. Say, you know, I think I can b- build a better mousetrap because I've done this for 15 years in like sales and trading or in pharmaceuticals, you know, in research and correlating research. But then I met so-and-so who showed me all this tech that I didn't know was possible. I brought them in and we together have done this and this. Like, it's just about being honest of what your blend is. And if you try to be too much and hide, you know, your kind of strength matrix, I mean, you might get away with it for a little bit, but I don't think you're actually going to end up, I don't think you're going to end up getting away with that forever. Valid point. I I think your supposition that these folks with a mix often will end up leaning on the expert system, I think that's actually a pretty curious area to study. We look at so many different vendors. I think it's, this is like a, something almost worth investigating and, and we'll see there's, I think there's more and more now companies being founded, not just with, well, I went to Carnegie Mellon for AI, so can I have $5 million? Like that doesn't work quite as well. Yeah. So people often have like, and my co-founder worked with American Express for payments for this many years, and we're going to disrupt mobile payments. Like that's happening more often, but yeah, it has right. pros and cons to it, which is really interesting that you bring up. Anyway, Tim, I know that's all we had for this episode, but it's yeah. been some great insights on selling AI into the enterprise. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Awesome. Thank you. Appreciate it. So that's all for the AI and Business Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed the switch we've done over to covering use cases on Tuesdays and covering making the business case on Thursdays. It's really been direct feedback from our listeners and subscribers. What some of you probably don't know is that over the course of last month, I had told Marcus, one of our team members, to get me on the phone with 30 different folks from the Emerge ecosystem. This is podcast listeners, email subscribers, uh, and some of our customers, customers of our reports, customers of our Emerge Plus memberships, etc. And he got me on those 30 calls really fast. Three weeks in, I was already done with 30, and that's a lot of phone calls. But part of why I did that was to learn about what people are working on. I talked to a head of innovation at a Canadian bank. I talked to a CEO of a 200-person IT services company in Spain. We got a lot of different perspectives, but they really fell into two buckets. One was practical advice about how to actually deploy AI and how to decide whether to buy AI, or in the case of people that are selling it, how to actually sell it. So that's more the making the business case side. And the other side was just learning more about what it does. What does it do in legal? What can it do for contracts? 
What can it do in oil and gas? What is it doing in these different pockets of industry so that we can kind of learn and glean some of those ideas for our own business or for our own clients? That was the other side of things. So this balance between use cases and making the business case was something that was pretty well calibrated out of all of those various and sundry phone calls that I had with you, the listeners and subscribers here at Emerge. So big thanks for the folks, some of you who are undoubtedly tuned in. Big thanks to you who were able to pick up the phone and spend some time with me. Super appreciated that. We had a lot of good meetings with the team about those sessions. And next week, we're actually going to be doing three use case episodes throughout the entire week. We're going to be covering logistics and supply chain in great depth. We've got three different episodes, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all covering use cases from different perspectives, different angles. And uh, we're going to be going a little bit more voluminous in terms of our actual publishing schedule here. But we know people are trapped at home. Folks have really appreciated being able to have more to listen to, and we want to be able to do more of that. So next week, three use cases in a row, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then we're going to be moving into our Making the Business Case episode after that. So I hope you enjoy and look forward to having you with us then.